Okay, on this edition of Musical Explorations, we're going to look at different musical systems and the w devices and things that composers use to write their pieces. We're going to look at tonality, the very basics, all the way up through different type of systems, including serialism and other computer systems and those type of things. And I'm going to try and do this in as little as possible, one hour to two hours if possible. We'll have to make it probably into two episodes. I'll see how it starts working out as we get into it. Okay, what you just heard was a uh, an excerpt from a piece of mine, and the, the writing is a kind of style called pan, it's kind of quasi-pan-diatonic, and I'm going to explain what pan-diatonicism is when we get to that, and it's one of the systems you can use for composing. All right, there's as many variations in systems as there are composers. Every single composer tries to get their own personal system when they're writing that, that identifies that kind of system with them and it's a, like a language and it, it helps to find the composer's style. So we won't look at specifics. I'm not going to go into uh, specific parts of a composer style, how they do certain things to get a certain sound. We can do that maybe some way later date. But we want to deal with some generalities and it comes with how you will be able to identify the type of system being used with the type of music you're hearing and it will help add to your appreciation of the piece and and uh, and, the, and the overall musical experience the more you know about music the more you uh, enjoy it There's, you can enjoy it just on more than just the level of listening to it um, one would think that with only 12 tones I mean we have a 12 tone chromatic scale and we think with all that that the, the systems to write music would be pretty limited uh, that wouldn't be so many, but such is not the case. So we have uh, music from Bach, even before that, tonal music from Bach all the way to through Mahler and, and other composers. I'm going to play a couple of uh, small little excerpts so you can hear the differences, and they're both tonal systems. So there's three examples of tonal systems. I use a piece of Bach, uh, the Mass in B minor, a thing called Sunbonnet Sue, just the interesting uh, beginning from Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and then Stravinsky, a thing called Renard, the beginning of Renard. Anyway, it shows you that uh, tonal music can sound any different way. I can take all classical music. I threw a Bob Wills in there just to show that folk music is also tonally based in much the same way that classical music is based. So tonality is versatile and can be used to make a lot of different types of sounds and, and used for a lot of different musical styles, uh, including folk and rock. So makes no difference. Even pop music uses uh, tonality a lot. Regardless of how sophisticated the rap music sounds, it's actually very simple harmonically. It's not much at all. So what is it about tonality and, and its use? It makes it so versatile. Why is it 
why do we use it so much? Why has it lasted? In, in spite of efforts over the years of composers to destroy it, why is it still uh, part and parcel to our musical practice and musical style? And that's the, just the way it is. First, uh, the first thing about t tonal music is that it must have a key base. Now, we have a system, our system of 12 notes is called equal temperament. And each of those keys, each of those notes, and I'm going to play from C to C, the 12 notes of our equal-tempered chromatic scale. And it ends up back on C. Now, the, the, with those 12 notes, we can take subsets of them and make all kinds of different music. Most of our music is around what we call tonality, a C major, G major, um, a F major, or a A minor, a C minor, a major or a minor scale. Now the distance between each of those little notes there, that one, that one, that one, are all equal. That's why we call it equal temperament. Okay, in, in olden days, it used to be called just intonation. It was a whole different way of looking at music, and there were problems with just intonation. Bach uh, codified the system. It was in practice, but Bach basically, with what, writing the well-tempered clavier, he basically codified the whole system. Okay, now these 12 notes can be used to create all other kinds of systems that we have. Within that 12 notes, we can create what we call our major scale, and that's this. Okay, that's C major, but I can start on any note. I can start on G. I can start on A. I can start on any note uh, in F. And I can write all the scale distances will be the same. In other words, the intervals that I'm using here is, is a combination of whole and half steps. Remember, the smallest note is the half step. This one, those are all half steps. This is a whole step. It's two half steps, okay? And we use a combination of whole and half steps to make what we call the major scale. So a C major scale is a whole step from C to D, a whole step from D to E, a half step from E to F, a whole step from F to G, a whole step from G to A, a whole step from F, uh, from A to B, and then a half step from B to C. So I have whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, whole step, half step. That arrangement of whole and half steps define the major scale. Now, we derive most of our Western music and most of our stuff from what we call the Greek modes. These were back, Pythagoras helped define these and other uh, Greek people define these, and they were basically codified during the Renaissance. But the Greek modes are basically the root of our Western tonal system, okay? When I was in school, we were taught that the Greek system was, of course, the earliest record of any kind of visible uh, notation system. But recent archaeology has uncovered that way th 3,000 years before the Greeks, the uh, Assyrians and uh, the Sumerians and people were actually writing in cuneiform, were writing uh, notation, musical notation, actually writing counterpoint, meaning voice against voice and and, and it's a whole new uh, uh, area of, of musical archaeology that's showing some real light into what musical systems were in existence uh, before. 
But our system is basically based on the Greek modes. Okay, for all practical purposes, you can uh, work those out. We can uh, use that as a as a given. It's a it's a it's cut into concrete. Now, the thing about these modes is that we we the, most of the modes when the Greeks did, of course, would have been around a just intonation system or a different toning system, not equal temperament like we have. But we can emulate pretty much what they sound like. We can get close. We, we don't know exactly, but we can get close. If I take the C major scale, that's really the Ionian mode. That's like the basic mode. It's the same as our major scale. If I start on the next note in that scale, the D, the major scale is C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. If I start on D, and play up to D, I'm playing one of the Greek modes called the Dorian mode. And you'll hear a lot of music in Dorian. Um, uh, Carlos Santana almost exclusively writes in Dorian mode. So what makes it different is where those whole and half steps fall. Okay. You can do modes on anything. Aeolian mode uh, on A here. is exactly the same as our natural minor scale. So you hear things like this all the time. Very simple stuff, okay? That says that's the key of A. Now, with our equal temperate system, the modes can be produced by playing all the white keys on the piano. So just play on the white keys. You can play all kinds of modal stuff here, like uh, in Dorian, which is very popular. You can write your own little minimalism. So uh, composers have used modes in combination with major and minor tonalities, what we call tonalities, are really just modes, remember, um, to, to do these things. Okay, so again, Aeolian mode, same as our natural minor scale. We, we alter our scales, and the composers have altered scales over the years to uh, accentuate certain things. And we have harmonic minors and melodic minors, but I'm not, this is not a music lesson here in that sense. Okay. Remember, the, why these things sound different and why they operate differently is, uh, is the different areas of where the half steps, remember the major scale, whole, whole, half, whole, 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 half. In a Dorian mode, it's different. It's Now it's whole, half, whole, 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 half, whole. So instead of ending with a half step, it ends with the whole step. That causes the harmonies and everything else to sound completely different. Composers have used that over the years to accentuate and make different sound music. So our tonal system, remember, made up of whole and half steps. So from this humble beginning, these Greek modes, we get our scales, okay? Our major scale based off the Ionian mode. Remember that one? C major is just the same any, that, that arrangement of whole and half steps makes the Ionian mode. Tonal music, or it's actually really modal music, but with a key base, is what makes it, it, its identifying key is the fact that you have started on a specific sound note. If I started on C and I play up, 
that's a major scale there. If I start on G, and you can hear that the scales kind of sound the same, even though they're not. Now, it's the same with minor scales. The, the arrangement of whole and half steps isn't the same as that of major scales. In the early 1900s, through the current time, composers tried to expand that tonal system. Bach codified, remember, under the, in the well-tempered clavier, codified the system, and they wanted to change it. Uh, composers are a strange lot. I mean, some of them just use what's given them and they, and they stick with that. Other ones want to change it. And they want to make it their own. They want to personalize it. So they've been looking always for things to change the system. Very quickly, we found out that there were little things that you could add to basic chords in in the uh, in the uh, in the scales. I mean, if you if you put the C major scale here, and I play the first, the third, and the fifth note of that scale, I'm playing a C major chord. They found out that some just playing those three notes was great. You could establish a key center and you could make harmony, but it didn't add any real flavor to the music, and they started looking for ways to to spice the music up in a way. I mean, this is, this is boring. If this is all you had, after a while, you would say, what in the world, you know? So you want to spice it up. So you would add uh, some other leading tones, or maybe the melody would take you to a place where there's other tones added to the chords that would make this, the sound more interesting. Okay. Now, one of the modern, in the sense of modern things, of uses, was they started using these modes uh, in different ways. Uh, so contemporary composers uh, started using modes to actually accent different parts of their music. Now, this had been done. Brahms used modes, uh, but he used them differently. If, instead of C, in uh, Brahms used like a lot of uh, the Phrygian mode. Now, the Phrygian mode is is what happens if you start on the third note of the C major scale. In other words, here's if I start on the E here from the C major scale, and I play up, it starts on a half step, and then goes to a whole whole, whole, half, whole, whole. So it starts on a half step. It's the only scale that does it. Brahms liked that. So he wrote a lot of type of Phrygian sounding passages in the, in the middle of his uh, piano works and the middle of his other works. It's one of the distinctive things in Brahms is that, is that he liked that Phrygian mode a lot. Okay, now we don't have on our keyboard arrangement in the Western musical system, we really don't have anything smaller than the half step. There are microtonalists who write and make instruments and, and do stuff, but it's not part and parcel to what we have and use as our system. There are microtonalists that use it. We did our, our show on, on Penderecki and on, of course, uh, uh, Harry Parch and other people that have experimented with the sounds of, of microtonality. Uh, it has some advantages, it has some limitations, just like anything else, is positive and negatives. Our, our equal temperance system is really, a, it's out of tune in reality to what the natural harmonic series is. But while we can't make smaller steps necessarily with using a traditional keyboard, we can make larger ones. I can make scales that are pentatonic scales that are different than the normal Diet, what we call the diatonic scale, are normal seven notes of your scale when you learn. And 
So, but you can make other scales, and composers have done it. They they've made like Phrygian scales, artificial scales, all types of things, and developed harmonies based on those scales. So. Composers, especially contemporary composers and minimalists, have used this kind of artificial scales to accentuate and add to their music. Other types of things, there's other types of uh, things in tonality that you can do and uh, without breaking tonality. I'm not going into atonality yet. We'll eventually do, a, I'll show you where atonality fits into all this. But mostly this is very simple. It's, it's tonality and tonal extensions. If I add chords to a chord, a C major chord, and I start adding other notes to it, I create different sounds. I'm playing C major and I'm adding other chords. Well, jazz musicians use this all the time. They use added note chords. Usually, the notes have something to do with the melody. The melody goes off or the melody bends or does something and adds to the harmony. And when you're trying to define what the harmony is, you would add these notes in. Okay. But people, especially artists, I have a bunch of inquisitive people. Well, they're always examining and questioning what they're given and trying to change it. Artists sometimes are inspired to do things. Other times it w works out differently. But our mytho mythology... It's full of stories of, of that nature of human beings. After all, even Adam and Eve were curious. You know, so what if we eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge? Let's see what happens. We're going to eat it anyway. We're going to find out. Well, people are always trying to expand what they have to either personalize it or just to try something new. Let's try something. Let's do an experiment. Let's try something. In fact, even contemporary music even went through a period where composers were calling, this piece is an experiment and how the ramifications of the sun in alignment with the moon and, and crazy, ridiculous explanations for music because their music was so insubstantial. Music is not experiment. You can experiment with notes. You can experiment with sound. But a piece of music, once you put it down, has to be exactly what it is that piece of music music like i said music cannot lie people can tell lies we can lie but human music cannot either the music is there and it's good and it hits your ear and you understand it or you if you don't understand it you recognize that there's a sophistication there that you're not capable of grasping yet now some people reject that other people are challenged by that but it is there. You can tell when people are committed and do a good performance and play well. You can tell. Music does not lie. It's impossible. You can take all the stories you want. So, uh, Bach, remember, Bach codified tonality, and ever since then, uh, the tonal system, of course, was in use. P people were using it, but nobody had ever written a piece in every single key, like the well-tempered clavier. So, uh, it's two books, and it's every single key, every C sharp, F sharp, F sharp minor, F sharp major. I mean, he went through the whole gamut of available pieces, and he could probably play them. He was an incredible pianist and, key and keyboard artist. He probably sang very well, too. So he wrote all those preludes and fugues. Now, one would think that changing social styles and evolving tonality and, and what is accepted to the ear would be enough. But that's not the case. Even social styles do change. People get involved with things because they're socially interesting. Art especially. 
uh, art has a big social aspect to it. And people are often, I don't know around here they're not, but in, in most places are, are very proud to have be involved with contemporary art and contemporary music. But the... Uh, but sometimes you can get local communities that get hidebound. Oh, no, Mozart is the only thing. And as people get older, their brains ossify and they don't, they don't want to be challenged by anything. They want everything to be nice and serene. And well, that's okay. You know, put them in a folks home and, and play uh, elevator music to them. Uh, the real world is still moving forward. I don't care what people, how much people stick their head in the sand. The real world and real composers are actually still out there writing and trying to challenge what is and, and what is in existence and trying to put their own personal mark on it. Now, these social things change, and they do change. Mozart socially wouldn't write, wouldn't write the same music as Bach. I mean, he emulated Bach in ways, but he did it in a way that would more fit the times. It seems like music has, has constantly gotten simpler and simpler and simpler as it's become more, as more people are exposed to it. Uh, it's a weird thing. When it was in the church, very sophisticated counterpoints and, and very sophisticated, very difficult music and, and uh, was, was very difficult. As it broke out into the general population, it slowly became more and more and more popular. Uh, Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy, was extremely and the most well-known piece in the world. You anywhere in the world you go and you hum a few bars of da 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 da, da and everybody knows immediately. Oh, that's Beethoven. All over the world. I don't care where you go. Uh, even in in places in Africa, people know that uh, that tune. Okay. So there always have been composers like Harry Parch. Remember, this is tonality, who have tried to extend that tonality. Harry Parch did it with a, uh, uh, he said he said basically this equal temperaments of a bunch of hogwash. Uh, it doesn't have any future. So I'm going to write a system that uh, from this C to this C has 43 notes. And, and that's going to really align me with the universe. And it's going to fix everything. And it's going to solve all the problems and and I'll be able to write this music when he wrote a music and it, and it was his own thing and sounded a certain way. But his system is not suited for all music. In other words, you can't play a C major chord in his music. You can play C major, but it takes two hands and you can't play, you can't play it like this. You have to play it like this over a long span. You can't play it simultaneously. It's too big for one person to play in his 43-tone system as it's defined. So it doesn't do a lot of things. It's nice that he developed a system. Uh, it's still tonal, still tonally based, even though it's 43 tones. But it's, it's kind of so difficult to work with and so difficult to do simple things with that it becomes impractical. Good for what he did. Nice. He made a, a, a personal statement there. But, and and uh, it, that's great. Okay. Now the keyboard that we have, with the arrangement of black and white notes is defined in such a way as to reinforce that tonal system. Okay, as long as we use these keyboards and they're defined the way they are, and we have this whole systemological study, we have books, uh, pedagogy, and, and books on scales and techniques, all designed around operating this piano keyboard, which has three black keys and the arrangement of two white, uh, two black keys, and then all the white keys in between, arranged in a way that the whole and half steps, basically like the C major scale, all the white notes. There it is. 
okay? So you want to play other scales? You want to play a pentatonic scale? Very simple. Just play the black notes, five notes. But you can play that pentatonic scale even in C major or in C, using C as a root. All right, composers realized pretty early on that creating a totally new musical system that would not only encompass the existing music, remember, if you're going to create something new, you have to be able to fit it in with what already exists. If, if, if you have somebody who spent a lifetime learning how to play the piano and you come up with a new system and it's so personal or it's so different from the existing set of knowledge, you're going to have a very difficult time selling it. You're going to have to go out and say, well, you, no, what you've done all for 20 years, that's garbage. You're going to have to do it my way now because I'm writing this new kind of music with this new stuff, and you can't play your kind of music anymore. You've got to learn a whole new methodology and whole new techniques. Well, that has limited appeal. Most people don't like that stuff. So we've had... Uh, all different types of things. We've had people come in instead of saying uh, the notation system based on our uh, uh, lines and, and staff measurement, we've had them change it because it would be more, it'd be easier. They've added lines, six line notation. We usually have five. At one time there was four uh, back in the, in the pre-Renaissance medieval times. It was only four notes. And sometimes it's just one line. Uh, the nooms in, in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, early days, the nooms of the monks in the Catholic Church were uh, initially was written on one line. You'd go up and down above one line, and do these chants. Okay, and music slowly evolved and became four, and then finally our modern five lines with with the little lines above it and below that staff called ledger lines, and that's how we do music. Okay, so if you're going to come up with a new system, it's got to be one that uh, allows you to play Chopin, but still on on your thing, and still play your music that's new. And it's a very difficult thing. It's a it's a Herculean task. And sometimes the effort isn't worth the outcome. In other words, the composer spending all his energy writing and defining a system like that, he's not spending time writing music, or he's writing music that's very that only reflects that system and you doesn't figure out a way to encompass other music inside of that system. It can't just exist on its own out there. I mean, it can, but it has limited life. One of the problems with Harry Parch, he's got these special instruments. We talked about that on the show. They're, they're wonderful. I mean, it's nice to go see them, and it's nice to hear what he does, but it's kind of the same sound. It's this twangy kind of... And, um, and you can't really figure out how you can figure out how the tonality moves, but it takes a completely different set of knowledge to figure out how those things work. Okay, now, so tonality has stayed. Our basic tonal system has stayed. In fact, the history is of as music has shown that, uh, that that instruments people don't make instruments and then write a music to go with them. What ends up happening is composers have a sound. And they want that sound to be a certain way, so they, they invent an instrument or they ask somebody to invent an instrument that will give them that sound. Wagner had these huge big tubas uh, that he made for, uh, for his sound, for his operas. Other people have uh, made sounds like that, even up to the electronic instruments. When people started writing, they didn't come up with the synthesizer and start writing music for it. What happened was in Utrecht, 
they were writing uh, tape music, putting things on tape. And I'll do a show on music concrete and electronic music, and we'll talk about how all that evolution happened. So you'll get a whole history of, well, where did the synthesizer come from? Why is it the way it is? And, and, and what were the early ones like? Um, but at Utrecht, it was a series of uh, tape manipulations. People figured out you could take this audio tape uh, uh, and you could put it on a tape recorder and turn it backwards and you could get sounds out of it. And Carl Heinz Stockhausen, one of the first, started putting this stuff together. But there were other people, it's called Music Concrete, other people that did it too, and they made these incredible sounds. Remember, as, as people have always experimented. All remember on my Verez show, people, Verez was listening to the hum of vacuum tubes and trying to figure out how to incorporate that in his music. So composers have always been adventurous and they're always looking for ways to expand uh, to expand the musical language in a sense, right? But they ha they're expanding it in a, in a way that can doesn't negate what went before. Okay, so tonality is here to stay. There's, a, there's no doubt in almost anybody's mind that it's some way, whether we try to write a tonal music or not, it, it has a limitation because it doesn't have any place to go. You can't keep atonally creating new things that are, that are going to take you into a new realm. Somewhere you're going to hit a key center, you're going to do something that, it, 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 we're, after all, we're dealing with music and we're dealing with a specific system that by the very nature of its acoustics, define kind of the kind of tonal systems we're using. It's not exact. Uh, and to, to do this, I'm going to take a look at a book uh, called 20th Century Harmony uh, by an American composer and, and scholar Vincent Persichetti. Now, Persichetti didn't cover everything, and he wrote this in 1961. So there's a lot of, you know, we're talking about over 50 years since that, and uh, things have somewhat changed, somewhat not changed. But his basic idea of, the, of delineating, he outlined a, of a few uh, musical systems that I want to cover. It's an easy way to do it, a, real, a good little summary. I got the book for $4.50 when I was a student, and uh, now they sell for over $100, used copies. Isn't that amazing? Uh, a book like that would be worth so much money. Okay, the first thing uh, Persichetti talks about in this thing is, is uh, systems designed around the overtone series. And we've talked about the overtone series with, uh, with both um, uh, Harry Parch and with uh, Lou Harrison. But um, this was hardly new in the 1900s. This wasn't new in the 20th century. Every composer since uh, uh, music basically came to be notated uh, sometime after Pythagoras uh, has understood the relationship between the notes and overtones and, uh, and how they fit together. And instrument designers, of course, knew about them because there used to be a thing in instruments called the wolf when uh, just tuned instruments. And I talked about that on other shows. But um, uh, the relationship between notes and the overtone series, and they figured this out whether they intuitively knew it or felt it or they could hear it. Sometimes they could hear it. Now, very briefly, a tone you hear, say this C here, um, has a series, of, it's the C, but it also has a series of overtones. And these overtones, you don't directly hear them. So actually, some people can. They can hear the other overtones. But the, uh, this C is going to have the first overtone that, that you hear would be an octave higher. It's this C. 
Now, you don't directly hear this note, but it would hear it as a vibration in the background. You're aware of it. And then the next note is a G. Okay. And then another C. And then an E. This E is actually, in the overtone series, is a little out of tune. It's kind of in between this E and this E here. It's like in between right in there. Uh, but we're a well-tempered system. And the next one is this G. So the overtone system would be this. Okay, next one up is a B flat. So in the, in the, in the scale of C, and you're using C as a basis, these are the notes that are going to be very similar to the overtone. Either they're right on it or they're very close. This G, okay, this E is a little bit off. It's a little bit off. And uh, another G, and then this B flat. And it's a little bit off too. Not exactly on that B flat. Remember, we have a well-tempered system. They've been moved a little bit in the, uh, from what their actual overtone series was. But... You can use these overtones just like they're almost hard, uh, uh, real um, uh, hard tones, a part of the equal tempered system, because they're so close. You're not going to necessarily hear the difference. Harry Parch tried to figure out ways to do that, but it didn't work. So let's play a couple of examples of where composers have used this overtone series in their compositions. Okay, that was from Copeland, and you can hear uh, the piano variations. You can hear up at the top end of the end of that piece where he goes up into the high notes. That's overtone series. We're going to hear what Stravinsky, another composer, did with the same thing. The same overtone series, not the same thing exactly. So you can see, while it's not an exact iteration perfectly of the overtone series. It uses that overtone series concept. So we've got music made from modes. Remember the Ionian, the Dorian on D, the Phrygian on E, the Lydian starting on F, and the Mixolydian starting on G. And the only difference in these modes is they're all the white keys on the piano is the, where the half steps and the whole steps fall in relation to the starting tone, okay? So, the also, uh, systems were made like from real nodes like that. They're also made from the overtone series that you heard, Copeland and Stravinsky. So, we uh, use the overtone series. But sometimes composers mixed up two modes. Sometimes they created polymodality or polymodality or polytonality. 
And these are still tonal systems because they're still based on the same key center, but they're not one key center in a sense, but two. So I'm going to play an example. Here's a, a, an A uh, Aeolian, right? That would be the mode there. If I play that same A mode in C, I'm playing this. All right, that's the same spacing, but on C. So it's like I could play the same, basically I can have this going on down here, right? And I'm playing up here with this. That's two modes mixed together. Both Aeolian, but different key centers. I can play uh, the A and I can play in Mixolydian. But if I'm playing in the same key, I'm gonna not, you're not going to hear that much of a difference. So if I play in Mixolydian, which is just a G basis, the same thing, but my left hand is playing the Aeolian, right? Basically a minor chord. But if I play on G as the key base over here, I'm playing... Okay, that's two modes mixed together. It's the Aeolian and the Mixolydian. Two nodes, but they end up sounding. Stravinsky used a lot of that. There were also synthetic scales. Now, synthetic scales can be any scales that you can create, and some of them even cover more than one octave. You don't have to have necessarily one octave or... Um, uh, or, or less. You can spread these out over two octaves. You can make scales that are uh, five tones. You can make scales that are 15 tones. It doesn't have to be uh, just uh, uh, seven-tone scales of our diatonic system. However, when you start getting into these extended scales, you start getting a foggy area as to key center. Well, where is the key center? Is it, is it taken from the middle of the scale? Is it taken from the beginning? So there were some problems there. The other thing that we have is a whole tone scale, and this was quite used quite a lot by composers. And basically, a whole tone scale says there's no half steps. So we have no half steps in there. If you hear that, this is a whole step C to D, D to E, another whole step, E to F sharp, F sharp to G sharp, G sharp to A sharp, A sharp to C. That's a whole tone scale. There's no half steps in here. Benjamin Britten was a big proponent of half step or whole step whole tone scales and, and even uh, some combinations of whole and half tone synthetic scales and those type of things. So let's play something from a whole tone scale. There's no half steps in here, and let's see if we can find a musical example that'll let you hear what it sounds like. Okay, this is a very brief little excerpt from a, a, a prelude by Debussy. And uh, in there, he uses a whole tone technique to, to get an amorphous kind of sound that doesn't really seem to have a tonal center. I mean, you hear... Um, 
Okay, no firm harmonic root. We kind of know we're wandering around, but we don't really have a key. So whole tone scales often used to get this feeling of amorphous, kind of wandering, no firm root. Okay, that's whole tone scales. They're also, like I said, synthetic, synthetic scales, and we can make them out of almost anything. You can have any type of scales and use them to write with, uh, with anything. Now, there's also symmetrical scales, and Stravinsky loved these. Uh, he likes symmetrical scales. The idea of a symmetrical scale is that every half step and whole step is, is equal. In other words, if I'm going to start here in C, I'm going to do a whole step to D, then I'm going to do a half step, then I'm going to do a whole step, then I'm going to do a half step, then I'm going to do a whole step, then a half step, then a whole step, then a half step. And that's a synthetic scale, okay? So it's it's whole step, half step, whole step, it ends on a half step. So play it again. There it is. Stravinsky used that quite a lot. So that's symmetrical scales. There's even something called an enigmatic scale, which is kind of a combination of a whole and half step. But anyway, it's a, it's a scale system that composers used to expand their possibilities of using harmonies, but not necessarily attached to a firm key center. Remember what's happening here with all these artificial scales and modes is that that very, remember we talked about last week when I talked about what establishes a key? It's that tonic to dominant, tonic, chord like in C, that's the basic chord, and the dominant, which is the fifth in that scale. So if I have a scale of C, my first is C, second is D, third is E, fourth is F, fifth is G. So my fifth is always called the dominant relationship with the tonic, which is the C, and the G is the one that is the, the dominant. So if I that, that relationship, that establishes the tonality. In any key I'm in, if I'm in D, D is established. If I'm in G, that establishes that tonic dominant relationship in Western music is what established the key relationship. What these scales do, like the whole tone scale and all these modes, is they break that down. They break that solid dominant to tonic relationship down and gives a composer, gives a composer more room to move around and write stuff around that idea of a tone base, a bass, because you can get a C going here, like down here. And I can play a whole tone scale here. Whole tone scale. No real tonal center, but I have anchored it with a C. If I anchored it with a D.
anchor it with anything you want. A whole tone scale is not going to give you a firm tonal bass. I can wander around and add anything I want in there as long as I use that the little idea of the whole tone scale, no half steps. I can do almost anything I want. Okay, and I'm expanding now. See, I'm expanding. I'm getting away from this idea of cadence. Remember? Cadence. One, five, one. Or one, four, two, five. Boy, that's C. There we are. We're home. Ah. Okay, but what ends up happening is, is that that gets boring after a while, and now it's the realm of pop musicians and those type of things, but people want, composers want to expand this stuff. They want to get their uh, more personal sounds. They want to get things done a little bit differently. Okay. Even Schoenberg did it. Even Schoenberg used tonal things, the, the, the great destroyer of tonality um, and uh, uh, that type of He actually used tonal materials. So... Let's listen to something that Schoenberg wrote using uh, some tonal materials here. Now, everybody knows Schoenberg is the uh, serialism and the destroyer of tonality, but in, in his early works, we're not that way. Okay, that's an excerpt from Schoenberg, Opus 11, um, uh, little piano sets that he did. And um, it is anchored, it is anchored in tonality, but yet it's still stretching that whole idea. The other thing that we have, uh, and composers used uh, quite a lot, was instead of having uh, chords built out of thirds, uh, in our system, we build chords out of thirds. Like if I take the first note in the scale, and the third note and the fifth note in the scale, I'm making, that's a C major chord in the C scale. There's my C major scale. One, three, five. I make a C major. If I take the next, start on D and move everything by thirds in the scale, I have a D minor. There's D minor. If I move on the next one, I have an E minor. That's known as the mediant, the mediant of the, in the scale, okay? The next one is called the subdominant, it's F. Next we notice, the next is our friend, the dominant. The next one's an A called the submediant. And then the leading tone, or the B. Okay, and you can, sell, you can hear each of these sounds a little bit different. Those are three-note chords. One thing that composers started doing, just in the basic three-note chords, I'm not going to get any into the any extended chords, the sevenths and ninths. I'll talk about that later. They started using chords that were organized differently, like every fourth tone. So we would have, instead of the every third, like this, 
we would have something like this. There's the first, the fourth, and the seventh, because this is four notes away here, and this is four notes away here. Four, one, two, three, four, all right? Chords by force, and you can extend that Where do you hear that? Benjamin Britten uses a lot of that. Other composers did too. William Walton used them. It's chords by fourths. You can have chords by seconds. In the key of C, there's a chord by second with C in the bass. C, D, E, F. There's D, D, E, F, G. Okay. In the basic chords, you can add upper parts of the scale, like that's a seventh, that's a seventh in the scale. If you want to make what they call a dominant seventh, you would flat that, and that's what's normally done in harmony, but we're not going to go into the harmony relationships here. Okay, all these things are possible, these are all tools used by composers. If you just keep piling thirds on, C, E, G, B, D, F, A, okay, we piled all these thirds on. Benjamin Britten used that quite a lot in Peter Grimes. In those little C interludes, you hear that quite a lot. That was very common for Benjamin Britten and a lot of other British uh, composers. Very popular, very easy way to get a nice beautiful kind of wavy sound, you know, if you think about it. Okay, so these are used, these are tools used by composers quite often uh, to extend this, remember, they're trying to break this tonality down and give us some more things to say. Um, Composers are always looking for things to extend just the basic music vocabulary and the music language. The other thing that uh, we have chords of thirds, remember, chords of fourths. You could actually have chords of fifths, I guess, but it doesn't make much sense because fifth, that fifth relationship is very strong in music. It's going to draw you back to the tonic no matter what you do. In addition to the chords and notes that are in the scale, composers started adding notes that were not part of the basic scale. So if I have a C major, I could add, if I added a seventh, I would have my C and add my seventh. That would be that chord there. But what if I wanted to add an A flat? I want that sound, you know. So I'm adding notes, and I can add all kinds of notes to extend the harmonic language of what I'm saying. If it fits in musically and works well and you like it, then it's good. Jazz is full of that. Jazz is full of added note chords. Six, sometimes fourths. Okay, this is part of what composers are doing are to expand the basic language of, of that, okay? 
Now, there were other things that they did. They added notes to chords. They added lots of notes, uh, chords by seconds. Henry Cowell, as we saw, got into this thing where he started taking that same idea, these chords. He says, well, look, if I'm going to add, make chords of seconds, uh, we'll say in C here, C, D, E, and F, why don't I just make a cluster? And we'll call that my cluster. There's his cluster on C. Here's his cluster on A. Okay, and he would do all different types of stuff. He would combine black notes and white notes. And he'd make these little clusters. Why not? If you're going to write this, why not just write a cluster? Write the starting note and the top note, little line between them, and everybody knows, and you play this. It's all the black notes. If you want the white notes, you write a little circle with a line through it, and it looks like that. Okay, and you can write this stuff all over. And this is what composers did. Henry Cowell was the guy that came up with clusters, but composers had been heading in that direction for quite a long time. So remember, always they're looking to extend tonality. Extend tonality and extend and, and open the language. Okay, polychords. Another thing, Stravinsky loved polychords. All right, polychords. What is it? Here's an A minor. And over that I'm going to play a E flat. All right, if I play it up here. Okay, if I play a D, D minor, D major, play F up in the right hand, D in the left. Polychords used all the time in contemporary music and in a lot of pop music is starting to use polychords and polyrhythms too. They're starting to get into that idea of two against three and polyrhythms and polychords. Remember, these are all things used tonality by composers. Mere harmonies. Harmonies that look the same going up as the same going down. I'm not going to play any examples because we don't need them. But um, all this is leading to one thing. All this work in harmony and all these little harmonic devices have all been going to one direction. And that direction was realized by Arnold Schoenberg when he wrote 12-tone music. When he first serialized these 12 notes into the same 12 notes, but into a completely different order that sounds uh, like this. There's the 12 notes, but then in a completely different order. So now we have emancipated harmony. We've gotten from seconds, thirds, fourths, added tones, all right, whole tone scales, pentatonics. We've gotten through all these things and expanded harmony up even on the top end with, with the thirds that go up ad infinitum. All these tonal basings where all these expansions are designed to do one thing. 
pull you away from that tonal center. In the case we're using here, C. It wants to pull you away so you're unsure. Well, is that in C or are we on C? In other words, we haven't firmly done this. Establish that dominant to tonic relationship. Okay, so let's go out. This is where we are. We're all the way up now. We've looked through the scale materials and added note chords. We've looked at uh, sevenths of these type of things and ninths, things that composers all use to expand the music and the harmonic language up into, into even pop music that now uses non-relational chords in a way. But still, they want to go back and use the basis of your ear wants you to go back to that common practice period. So we uh, composers have expanded tonality. Next week, we're going to take a look at how, how this expanded tonality started moving into atonality. And we're going to talk about then how Schoenberg ultimately developed serialism. We're going to go through that into total serialism and those type of things. And then the dissolving and the falling apart of atonality and atonal systems as being systems that did not meet the absolutely the requirements of the audience and the audience grew to hate it and composers actually started writing music that was intended to not be liked and we're going to talk a little bit about that and then how we evolved out of that and then moved into a world we're kind of in now which is almost anything goes but i'll show you where the roots of tonality came sneaking back into music and and uh, propelled us up into minimalism, and now the minimalism is falling apart in the way it's going from there. So let's listen to something of Arnold Schoenberg, uh, just because I love Arnold Schoenberg. He's a great composer. And let's hear something short, and then we'll go out, and we'll see you next week. Uh, that's Arnold Schoenberg, that's Opus 19, considered the first truly atonal piece of music. This is Ted Peterson. This has been Musical Explorations. We've looked at the roots of tonal music a little bit, how it fits into music, and some of the things that composers used to expand that tonality. Next week, we're going to look at the further disillusion of tonality into this that we're hearing, atonality and onward.